Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Dave Daniels. He's the founder at BrainCraft. So Dave, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. I know the stuff that you've been doing for a while, launching products, being part of the product management process. How did you get into it? Did you just fall into it? Or at some point, was it a plan? Oh, it was never a plan. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I was walking down the road and I fell into a hole and I'm like, oh, okay, now what do I do? Well, my journey to where I am here today and, and the shortest version I can come up with is I actually was a software developer and software engineer and sales kept coming to me and saying, Dave, you know, could you go out on a sales call with us? Because apparently you like people and you can eat with a fork and you're presentable. So... I said, sure, I'd be happy to go. And so then I went from developing code to being a sales engineer. And then along this journey, a boss came to me and said, you, and I go, yes. I go, you're the new product manager. I'm like, well, what does that mean? (laughs) Like, well, you were a software developer, right? Yeah. And you've been out in the field helping sales close deals, right? As a sales engineer. Yeah. They go, okay, great. You're, you're a product manager. And, and literally that was it. And so then that started my journey into product management and to product marketing and all kinds of things in between, including running a couple of companies, small companies. I gravitated towards launching products. I don't know why. It could be because my very first product as a product manager was a new product and the company hadn't launched anything in a long time. And my boss, who was very helpful, said, okay, we're going to launch the product now. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> well, well, you know, you got to make sure marketing's on, on board and sales is on board and support is on board. And he kept going down this list and, I'm, and I just going, oh my God. I hadn't realized it was such a big deal. The company I was working for at the time had several hundred salespeople scattered across uh, North America and Europe and Japan. And so it wasn't just running down the hall and saying, hey, everybody, let's do a lunch and learn. I'm going to show you something new. It was like time zones and language barriers and business culture, selling differences and a change in the way that they do things and and on and on and on. And I started out with a very simple tool. It was a a spreadsheet and across the top, the columns were the different functional areas. And on the first column, the rows were the end of a a week. Each row was a week and you got to get this done and this done and this done and this done and this done. And it was like herding cats in, you know, seven different languages, eight different languages. And apparently I did okay. And so, you know, as I moved on to other companies and other responsibilities, product launches always seemed to find me. I was never seeking them out, but they always seemed to find me. I'm like, 
Dave, we need your help on this. Or Dave, I heard you've done this before. Dave, would you sit in on one meeting? One, one meeting, of course. Yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, and then I, I learned how companies do it, do things well. And I've learned how companies don't do things well and uh, developed a radar for what is good and what is not. And over the years, developed different tools and different ideas and philosophies, which led up to where we are today on, on this podcast. And, you know, I'm on a mission to try to help companies successfully launch their products. And it isn't a website. It's not a podcast. It's, you know, it's not a PowerPoint presentation for your sales team. It's not, you know, fill in the blanks of all the usual things. So when you go online and you search for, you know, launch checklists, you know, there's a presumption that you know what you're trying to accomplish. And the checklist is just a little tool to help you. And in the end, I developed this uh, BrainCraft product launch framework, which zooms out and it says, let's look at launching a product like it's a business and not like it's a fun thing where we have pizza and beer and celebrate and, you know, sit there and wait for, you know, the orders to come in that don't come in. And you reached out to me and I am privileged to be on your podcast today. Well, thank you so much. Now, I'm just going to put a little bit of a scale to this because, you know, you talked about sitting in on a few meetings and stuff. You know, you've mentored thousands and thousands of people on this. And, 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 and what I would love to know is what are the bad things a company is, is doing? You've, you've, highlighted, you've, you've sort of hinted on a few areas, but, but elaborate. And what are the great things you've seen? Oh, yeah. I like to focus on the positive. So let's start with there and you can infer what the bad things are. The, the number one thing, the number one thing to know is that like any major initiative in a company, a product launch is a major initiative. And like any major initiative, you want to have a target. You want to know what success looks like. So in order to have a successful anything, including a launch, you have to have a definition of what success is. Too many companies fail in their product launches because they don't have any target whatsoever. They don't know what good looks like. And, and it's a race to finish a bunch of deliverables. And I have a saying, and the saying is outcomes over outputs, right? What are we trying to accomplish? And if you can establish that up front and you can get clarity and agreement from your stakeholders, then the entire team, the entire organization understands what's, what's to be accomplished and why it's to be accomplished. Large organizations tend to have a buildup of sort of uh, stuff over time, maybe expectations that are not really documented but understood or maybe there are some history there of of what good looks like or or maybe it's an individual who just has a preference to do certain things a certain way without any recognition 
of what customers want, what the market wants and what they're expecting and so forth. And the other issue that I, I see as a problem area is the number of companies when they're launching, especially a new product, they completely underestimate the obstacles that are in front of them and they overinflate the advantages they believe they have, right? And I, I have a saying there too, it's only an advantage if customers believe it's an advantage. It ain't an advantage because you say it over and over and over again. Right? <laughs> I like that. Before you go too far into this, I want to double back with examples. Because, you know, you can say objectives. What are some good objectives you've heard over the years? Because uh, it yeah. has to be clear for people. I'll give a simple one because it's the most common one, which is either revenue if you're selling it or if you're in software and you want subscribers, the number of subscribers, right? So it's any good launch objective needs three elements. You need to have the metric. In this case, it's we're going to sell something, so sales. Two, you need to have a quantity, how much. And then three, you have to have a time frame. And if you, you can't have two out of three, you got to have all three. So a great example might be, you know, we want to generate 5 million in new revenue with this product six months from the launch date. All right. So now that sets an element of urgency, right? Sense of urgency for the entire organization. And, you know, at the top of the organization, we can set very specific expectations. So now we can start rewinding that. Well, what does 5 million mean? What's the average sales price going to be? How much will a customer buy in one transaction? Are they going to buy over a period of time? How many customers, prospects are we going to have to talk to before one of them says yes and buys the product? Right. So we can start doing some pretty basic elementary arithmetic around it and work our way backwards. And by working our way backwards, we begin to see where we have gaps in readiness. Well, well, what's it going to take to get our sales team up and running? Um, our channel partners, if we have them, what is it going to take from a marketing push in order to generate enough awareness to get people interested to engage with us and, and look at what we're doing. You know, all of those things start unwinding very, very quickly. And you begin to see with the true effort and the true cost of doing it well. Now, you may go through that exercise and realize 5 million is a little too optimistic. So, okay, so we scale it back a little bit. We still want to be aspirational. So we'll just scale it back a little bit. Because you don't want to set a target so big and so lofty that you can't hit it. And then you just demoralize everybody. What did I do wrong? And you know, we don't want that either. For sure. Now you mentioned obstacles that are minimized or overlooked. What are some of these obstacles that are minimized or overlooked? Obstacles are things like in some markets, particularly in mature and established markets, building materials being one of them, you know, there are well understood paths of how you get your product into the channel, work its way through the value chain, ultimately to somebody who says, yes, I want one of those. It doesn't happen overnight unless there's some huge compelling thing, like maybe a government regulation or, or something that is a catalyst 
to move the ball. And so what happens is companies, particularly early stage companies, completely underestimate how much work it takes to establish a footprint, develop a level of authority, uh, make the connections that they need in the value chain so they can actually be considered trusted, you know, in a, in a closed loop kind of system. And they overlook that. They just think that their product is so cool that everybody's going to want it. And, you know, everybody's going to want to sell it and everybody's going to want to inventory it. And it doesn't always work out that way. Matter of fact, it rarely works out that way. <laughs> I guess what you're saying is you can only move as fast as your slowest point. That's it. That's right. The race. You touched on something interesting as well, which was, I guess, what customers want. Right? That's a big yeah. area. I mean, whether it's an incremental improvement in innovation or more of a revolutionary or disruptive innovation, how do you think through that in, in this process? I typically draw a, a diagram and it's really simple. It's a really simple diagram, but it illustrates a very powerful point. So take three circles that all intersect, right? Kind of a Venn diagram-ish kind of thing. Now, one of those circles is what customers want. Now, that, that really is, I've got, I'm a customer, I have a problem, I have a need, I'm trying to satisfy those, those needs. It's got to fit within a, a range of attributes and qualities that I'm looking for to solve my particular need. Then another circle is what you do, your company. And, and some of that should intersect with what customers want. And then the third one, of course, is competitors. What do they do? Now, what you're looking at is where those intersections are. Because where you intersect with what the customer wants and your competitor doesn't is what is referred to as the winning zone. You got some secret sauce that they don't have. Now, likewise, what your competitor has that you don't, that the customer wants, is their secret sauce, right? What gives them a leg up. Where companies fail is they don't recognize this and they look at features and capabilities and technologies. And like customers are like an afterthought. Like what customers want. It's like, look, I grew up in tech. I know this. I've been in this meeting many times. Why wouldn't they want it? This is the coolest thing ever. You know, do you know how many hours we've worked on this? And, you know, how many times we screwed it up until we got it right? They're going to love this. Just show it to them. They'll buy it. And they don't. And they, what I'm trying to get to is they focus so much on who their perceived competition is because they look at, well, we have these features and the competitor has these features and they do this kind of comparison without any regard for what the market wants. Do nothing is a big competitor, huge competitor. Yeah, yeah. And so you battle it out and you go, well, we must be losing because competitor X has a feature that we don't have. So we go to management and we say, we need funding to do another version of the product and put that feature in. Well, will we sell more? Well, of course we will. And then they don't. 
And there is this area that I also refer to as the dummy zone. So the dummy zone is where all three of these intersect, which means, you know, you're competing. I'm, I'm sorry, that, yeah. The dummy zone is when you're looking just at your competitor. Then there's a zone where all three intersect, and that's where you're like in no man's land because everybody's equal. And when everyone's equal, the common brilliant response is, well, let's just lower the price, right? And so it's a race to the bottom. Yeah. The absence of understanding what the market really wants is a big weakness, not just for product launch, but for all companies in general. You know, there's the executive who has the epiphany on the way into the office and says, we should build this. And everyone goes, oh, well, he gets paid the most and he's got a big title, so he must be right. So we should do that, right? It's a, it's a term I learned from some buddies of mine called the hippo. Are you familiar with the hippo? No, tell me about that. The hippo is the highest. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. I forgot the highest acronym. paid I know person or something like that, right? I'll, I'll have to look it up again. I just, it slips my mind. But the hippo is the one who has the biggest title and makes the most money. And therefore, we re, we reflect on that and go, well, they didn't get there because they're, they're stupid. They must be good at, at what they do. So we must listen to them. And they make huge, huge mistakes and blow tons of money by not taking the time to go, wait a minute, is that true? Maybe we should validate that. Maybe we should at least ask a couple of people. I don't have to ask everybody, just a couple of people. Yeah, for sure. Now, I, I, there's so much there. But one of the things that your comment reminded me of, I know Ray Dalio is, talks a lot about paying attention to who is consistently right in an area and kind of triangulating a team based on people that are consistently right on things over a, a length of time. I mean, where's the art and the science of understanding customer need and insight? You know, knowing the customer better than they know themselves, what does that process look like from a science and art point of view? For yeah, that's good. It's not coming from industry pundits report. It's not coming from the sales guy who just lost a deal. <laughs> but all of these things add up. The thing that we lack in a lot of organizations is firsthand knowledge of the market, right? We do a Google search, find a PDF. PDF says, oh, this is a big problem. Lots of people have it. It's a gazillion dollar problem. You, you know, and then we go, oh, look, we should do this. But we're not taking the time to genuinely go out have conversations with people in the market at all levels, right? This is the, the problem is when we're very technical and we're trying to solve a technical problem, we're talking to technical people who may have no influence over the decision to buy that technical product. So we're not talking to all people who are involved in a buying decision. We're not seeing the context of of how big a problem is or how small it is. I wonder how many product managers and how many startups have gone out and talked to a handful of people who said, this is the most important problem of my entire life. And they get, they validate 
based off of that, get funding to build a product only to find out that their boss's boss doesn't see it as a problem at all and would never spend the money. And, and we're all guilty of it. I'm not pointing fingers here. I mean, we've all had that experience at some point. Or if you haven't, you will at some point. So what does it mean? It means having relatively unstructured interviews with likely participants in the market. You know, you could use like Socratic methods or whatever you're comfortable with to try to extract and get to the truth. Five whys, you know, whatever you're gonna use. But the whole point is to have an open-ended discussion that from the beginning of the conversation, you don't know where it's going to end up. When you guide the discussion to the point where you want to go, you view it as they validated what I believe to be true. That's what we want to avoid. We want validation comes next. What we're trying to find is, are there enough people out there who describe the problem Maybe they describe it in different ways, but they describe the problem in such a way that we can we can see a thread through all of them. And once we've seen that thread, we can go, okay, now let's let's do just a little bit more. I mean, we could do a quick little survey or uh, maybe we could put together a focus group, which is a lot easier to do online nowadays, right? We can get thousands of people on a focus group at once. But the idea there is to don't start out validating a good idea. Start with the notion that I believe I have a good idea. Let me go find out if, if other people are having that same problem for which I think I have a great idea. And if you get some feedback that tells you that, the data, it doesn't have to be a huge study, but a qualitative study, you say, I think we're in the right direction. Then the next step is to say, well, maybe we should dig into this just a little bit more, spend a little bit of money and see what we can find out. Because we don't want to spend $5 million to find out that we have, you know, a $2 million market. That's, that'd be kind of silly. No. But we, we might be okay with spending 100000 to discover that it only is a $2 million market and just be thankful thank the lucky stars that we didn't go down the path of actually investing our time and, and uh, precious resources on something that, that won't yield any results. Yeah. It's just, so just to summarize what you're saying, it sounds like the ability for an organization to try to bring their entire team, their executives slightly or more closer to the end customer is always a benefit. And then trying to align the people that do know that have a track record and align the influence in the decision-making process as much in line with the people that really know what's going on. And then the third mm -hmm. part you're starting to talk about, I think is basically is the innovation and the insight work before the technical development is done, just so that you That's can right. take more shots and running tests, getting very good at doing cost-effective analysis and trials before taking the more expensive mm -hmm. shot of development. Right, right. Before you, yeah, you plow down the big money to push it through. Exactly. And, you know, I'll concede on this. Sometimes 
when you're in a point of validation and you're trying to say, is this a problem that you have? And you're trying to, so validation comes into two levels. There's validating the problem and trying to get your arm around how big the market actually is. And then there's the part of validating the solution, which could go through many iterations until you get it right. It's not uncommon for companies to start with trying to validate the solution before they fully understand what the problem is and what the scope of that market is. Especially in my world of, of mostly software, it's quick to whip up something. You can whip, you know, whip up a prototype pretty quickly and then start showing it to people to try to get feedback on how to make the features better before you fully, fully understand that um, there, there isn't even a market for it. People will gladly tell you what's cool about it. I want to know if they're going to give me money for it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I guess, uh, you know, the book Mom Test comes to mind, you know. It's a whole different thing when, when you ask money for something. Than the- oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, you can talk to people and they'll tell you their feet are on fire. We need to do something about it right away. And then when you go... If I can make that problem go away for you, how much is that worth to you? I'm like, well, I don't have any budget. You got to talk to my boss, but it's a really big problem for me. <laughs> so how do you sift through that? I mean, I, the one that comes to mind is, you know, if, if there's a cost-effective way to do trial selling or, you know, you know, you know, collecting money and, and deliver fulfilling on the back end, sure. But I mean, what, how do you think through that problem? Well, I can give you an example that happened to me and uh, my team. We took over managing a product and uh, the development team had been working on it for a number of years already on and off. So there was a significant dollar investment already. It became apparent to me that the product was not going to be ready for six or nine months easily. So I decided to go out and talk to, this is a software product. So I went out and I talked to CIOs at uh, different companies who are already our our customers. So I I went to what I assumed to be a friendly audience and one who would be more open because they wouldn't feel like they're being sold to. And I was trying to understand what their willingness to pay would be for such a software product. And I was informed by the development team that uh, as soon as the product was available, all of our customers said they would buy it. And that was a big red flag for me right away because I knew that my development team was talking to a technical audience because it's a technical product. Well, I went to talk to the people who would have enough budget to pay for this product, which would have been in the lar- you know six, mid six figures to seven figures for software, enterprise software. And I can't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere between 30 and 40 CIOs I spoke with. And every single one of them said, we are not investing in that kind of product. Not a single one. So uh, I came back and I, I spoke to my boss and, you know, individually I spoke, uh, spoke to stakeholders to try to soften the blow a little bit. Because I'm the messenger, you know, it's not my opinion. I, I had quotes from every one of them. And um, so we got together and I said, um, here's what I've learned. 
It doesn't appear to be that there's a um, willingness to purchase this kind of product. And uh, they said, well, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, I think we should pull the plug. Let's just, you know, let's salvage what we can out of what we created and put it on the shelf and, you know, lick our wounds and move on. And I didn't know how that would turn out, but it turned out okay. So I didn't know if I'd have a job at the end of the meeting is what I'm saying, <laughs> but it worked out okay. You brought attention to a very interesting point. When you, you know, develop a product, you launch it and it's not meeting objectives. How do you know when it's time to revise something? How do you know when it's, to, when it's the time to pull the plug? Okay, so we started out talking about having a launch objective. Right. And then you can cascade that objective down to different parts of the organization. Yeah. You could, you could have product, you could have support, you could have marketing, you have sales you, on ad nauseum. What you need to do is to create a small manageable set of progress indicators, right? So how do I know that we all as an organization are moving toward that objective? Right. Like I get in a car, I start the car up, the engine's running. Let's use an ice car because, you know, I'm not one of the cool kids with an electric car yet. So, you know, it's sitting there, it's idling. I'm getting comfortable inside the car. I set the heat, you know, all of that. But I'm not going anywhere. I'm comfortable, but I'm not going anywhere. So I've got, if I looked on my dashboard, I've got all kinds of potential things to tell me. Like, okay, if I want to go, uh, you're in Vancouver, right? All right, so I'm in Birmingham. I want to drive to Vancouver, All right? So, and I want to get there within four days. All right, so now I've got an objective and I can do things like I can say, well, what does my average speed per day need to be in order for me to get to Vancouver in four days? I can look at all the other gauges that are on my dash to make sure that my car is in healthy condition. So it's, you know, it doesn't break down and I know when I need to get gas and, do I need to change the oil and whatnot? So by having a small set of progress metrics, you can regularly tap the data and go, are we going in the right direction? So for example, if we're not generating enough interest in the product, is that a function of the product or is that a function of marketing or is that a function of sales? I should have metrics in each one of those to give me some guidance. Now I can look at it and say, okay, it looks like sales is tip top and they're doing everything we would expect them to do. Maybe let's, let's dig closer into the marketing because I don't want to dive into the product yet. Someone's got to buy it and say it stinks before, you know, we go there. We can also incur things like win loss interviews to see what's working and what's not working. But, but what I'm trying to say is, what are the metrics we need to tell us that we're heading in the right direction? Mm, that's really good. So essentially for our company's language, a scorecard, right? With yes. a focus yeah. on finding out leading indicators of success. Yes, that's it. Leading cool. indicators. So I know if I travel on average 67.5 miles per hour per day, I'm going to make it to Vancouver in four days. Well, on the second day, I only averaged 50 miles per hour. I got a problem. So now what does it mean? I'm going to have to go faster. <laughs> I need to fly to Seattle and then get a rental car. I don't know. 
You can call Elon Musk, right? Get get a spaceship. Let's get a spaceship. That's right. So the 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 point is, and you don't have to overcomplicate it. Too many organizations overcomplicate these metrics, and they're a dizzying array of numbers on a on a chart, and you're like, well, are we are we heading in the right direction or not? Because I don't see the numbers where I would expect them to be by this point. Why? Right? I, I don't know about you, but I don't have the time to sift through 25 or 30 metrics to conclude what the problem is. Give me three or four, and then I can see where the one area is, and then I can work my way down into that area. I just want to see where the big parts are. Mm. Yeah, perfect. Now, now the overarching one, when you do these, you do everything right that you can front end, middle, back end, what should be a acceptable win loss percentage when it's all said and done? Because none of these things are foolproof. What, what, what is your view? On? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. And that, that ratio can vary widely. I mean, from industry to industry, market to market. You know, if you're lucky enough to find a market segment that's underserved and you have the right product at the right time, the win rate could be astronomical. But if you pick a market segment that is, you know, heavily served and you're just one more voice in all of the noise, you may have an abysmal win rate. So those are questions that you got to start with. Let's make a an informed expectation we expect the win rate to be whatever percent let's say 25 percent one out of four and and if we're hitting 30 percent or 40 percent or 50 percent we look at why but if we're hitting five percent we also look at why and the why could be simply the reason we have a five percent close rate is because this is an overserved market it's crowded. There is a market leader there already. Let's focus somewhere else. Now, let's be a big fish in a smaller pond, get some wins and expand from there. Yeah. Essentially put draw put a thesis out there and test against it and making sure it. all other areas of the organization line up to that. Exactly. And if you're hitting your 25%, then you say, great. Now let's see what is it going to take to get 30%. What's going to take to get 35%, you know, and, and you can gently nudge the organization into a progressively refining the process and the product to get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm at 40%. Right, great. Well, then my next meeting is going to be, how do we get to 42%, right? It was really hard to get to 40. So let's not go to 45. Let's go to 42 and then 43 and that way the the entire organization is in a state of how do we make it better how do we make it better but they're not looking at a metric that's down here that doesn't have any significant impact on what you're really trying to track up here by the way i'm a big fan of okrs objectives and key results they're ideal for product launch because they cascade so beautifully Wonderful. Yeah. So there's so many other areas, but uh, is there an area that I didn't talk about or cover that you wanted to cover that, that to round this conversation out? 
Yeah. One is positioning and the other one is who are your competitors in the Braincraft product launch framework. I start out saying you need to understand who your customers are. And what I mean by that is what are the attributes? What are the qualities that make a customer an ideal customer? Right. Let's, let's just forget about the generic stuff. Let's just talk about what makes them ideal. Cause when I'm an early stage company and I don't have a lot of money to invest, I don't want average. I want ones that are going to buy my stuff. So, and getting to understand what those, those common attributes are of your ideal customer profile, then leads you to, well, where do they hang out and where they hang out and is in market segments. So a way to think about this is that individuals have buying preferences, but market segments tend to have buying practices, right? Building materials, perfect example, right? There are patterns in how the value chain buys products and pushes them through the supply chain. And, but even within that, there are different layers, different segments that you could dice and slice up that give you a finer and finer grain. So the way I like to think about it is your ideal customer profile has a common set of attributes, but the little differences that happen between them are how you begin to separate them into different market segments. Now, once you're in a market segment, a market segment is what will give you the field of competition. And what I'd like to tell my clients and the teams that I've, I've worked with is that you have to look at competition through the eyes of your customer, not the features in your product. So customers have the often have the ability to address their needs in multiple ways. They could buy a product that's like yours. They could maybe create their own thing in-house, a do-it-yourself kind of solution. Some companies are able to solve their need by not buying a product, but educating their, their workforce, you know, giving them different and maybe better tools. When a customer looks at it, they're looking at, I have a need, and because of where we are nowadays with Google and you can self-diagnose everything with Google, customers tend to self-diagnose what the solution is to their problem. So that already puts everybody at a disadvantage. But the field of competition is determined by the market segment, not by the different products because some of your competitors will be different in one market segment than they will in another market segment. So now that I know what my market segment is, I can start evaluating who are the competitors who compete in that market segment. Then I can start my evaluation. There's ways to look at comp the competition. And the way you do that is going back to buying criteria, meaning, what do customers want? So if I understand what they want, then I can match their buying criteria. And hopefully I will over time understand what that buying criteria is 
and I can adapt my product and my processes to make us look better from a buying criteria point of view than the rest of my competitors. And there's an easy way to capture that as well. Now, now that I know who my competitors are, I know who my, where my market segments are and who my, uh, my ideal customers are, then and only then can I start thinking about positioning. Because positioning is not messaging. It's not the words, it's not the, the wonderful slick outputs that we create. It starts with position. Positioning starts with position. That's the root word. And what we're trying to say there is within this market segment, these are your competitors. So where do you fit? How are you going to compare yourself to everyone else? Now, here's a simple analogy to make positioning a little easier to understand. Everybody goes to a grocery store. I walk in the grocery store. There are rows of aisles of stuff. And then there's stuff around the outside walls. And every one of those aisles has a collection of similar products, right? They're categories of products, right? And when I walk down that aisle and the aisle says baking, I know there's going to be flour and probably sugar and all the things related to making cakes and cookies and bread and whatnot, right? And within each area of these shelves will be certain subcategories of products. Like these are all the flour. Here's all the organic flour, right? And there's all these different things. So I know how to find things. Let's say you're launching a new product. And let's use our grocery store analogy. And your product is disruptive. It's different, unlike anything ever. So the question you have to answer is, can I find an aisle where I can put my disruptive product? Or am I going to have to ask the grocer to create a new aisle? There are huge implications between the two. Obviously, one's more expensive and harder, and I've got to get people to go down the aisle and you know that they're unfamiliar with and, and so forth. There's a reason why in the early days of automobiles, they referred to them as horseless carriages because it was two aisles that people were familiar with. A horse. Oh, a carriage without a horse. Talk to me. Tell me about that, Tats. Oh, I'm interested now. I don't have to feed my horse and clean up after it. And then we can work our way down into things like value propositions and unique value propositions, and then eventually get down to crafting the words that support all of that wonderful hard work we've done. But I would say messaging, it's probably 25%, maybe even less of the whole process. Yeah. Now, you, you know, the concept that comes to mind you're talking about is in copywriting, I guess, would be anchoring based on concepts they understand. So are you saying in your point, if you can't anchor it to an existing concept that they somewhat understand, essentially, you're too early or it might not be the time. Or you may be there at the right time, but you now need to target a part of the market who says, I'm willing to go down that aisle with you. And it may not be mainstream yet. I don't know why. I don't know how it is in, in Canada, but in the U.S. early on when we had the 
non-dairy milks. Remember, we had almond milk and soy milk and all like that. You couldn't find them in the dairy section. So people would go to the store and they would go, I, I want this soy milk that I've been hearing about. So they go, where do they go? They go to the milk area. We don't have it in our store. What well, was over in the obscure organic area, because it didn't have to be refrigerated, right? So we think of milk as something that comes in certain size cartons and it's refrigerated and it's in this area. And I guess they finally figured it out. And now you go to the milk area and there's the cow's milk and the almond milk and the oat milk and the, you know, whatever milk, almond milk. And so, and they kind of struggled there for a while until they figured it out. I don't know if it was the milk lobby, you know, I don't know what's going on there. But once they figured out that, hey, we've got milk and we probably should be with the other milk, that's when it took off. Yeah. I mean, I, when you mention that, I just think of how trends evolve through different industries. I do notice certain patterns in different industries, how ideas seem to spread, certain jurisdictions, certain groups seem to launch new trends. And there's, in many industries, there is a consistent pattern of how that occurs. Mm -hmm. Everybody thought that it was Jeffrey Moore in Crossing the Chasm was the first to describe all of that. But there's a book called The Diffusion of Innovation, which was the, the original book, Diffusion of Innovation. And they go in, into great detail about early adopters and innovators in early market and late market and all of the psychology around why do they choose and when do they choose. And it's a, a very illuminating book, and it came out almost 20 years before. Yeah, it was 20 years before Crossing the Chasm came out. So it's a, it's a very old book, very textbooky, but really good, very deep. And it walks you through all, what do all of those things mean? Very nice. I could talk with you all day, but I, you know. Oh, me too. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's really good. Uh, you know, definitely um, what I will say, and you can definitely um, sort of mention as well, but check out Dave's stuff. I mean, obviously he's a wealth of information knows this very well. And there's just a lot more to this than what we talked about today. So hey, Dave, um, where would someone go if they if they want to sort of connect with you and get to know you better? The easiest way is go to braincraft.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-K-R-A-F-T.com. So braincraft with a K. You can find me there. The easiest way to do it. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, David Daniels, but uh, go to the website, there's all the links to get to me. And, you know, if you like something and you want to download it, I have a lot of material there for you. Hopefully a lot of good articles on my blog. People seem to like them. So yeah, if you got a launch coming up and it's what Tuesday and you expect to launch it on Friday, you probably haven't planned well. It takes a little bit more than that. And remember everybody scale matters. So yeah, if you're if you've got two salespeople, uh, that's a whole lot different than having two thousand. So, one organization I worked with had over five thousand salespeople, and that didn't include their channel partners. Think about the scale of getting all of that information out to everybody. Yeah, trying to get a simple message out to a lot of people takes a lot of repetition. It does yeah. Well, thank you, Dave. Appreciate you coming up. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. 
make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash tats talks for video of today's podcast hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com